0: Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I have interest in all things healthcare, delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and healthcare policy. Today is a very important episode because we are going to tackle the differences in oncology care between the US and Europe. I hear a lot on social media about how it is different outside of America to take care of cancer patients. Some say it is way better outside of the U.S. Others contend that, you know, there are a lot of trade-offs. If you really don't like what's happening here, wait until you try to get your care in England or Canada or Europe somewhere. So, you know, the jury is out pretty much uh, on where is the best place to receive healthcare. And I think that there are pluses and minuses to really anywhere you get healthcare. But to address this, I decided to invite two medical oncologists one that is practicing currently in Europe, but she did first practice in the US. And the other currently is practicing in the U.S., but she was practicing in Europe before. I mean, come on, guys. What more can you ask for? We are going to have a current medical oncologist practicing in Europe who previously practiced in the U.S. and vice versa. This will allow both of them to really address what differences did they find, what changes did they encounter, and really paint the accurate Picture for you listeners to better understand this issue of trade offs. Dr. Marina Garasino, who is currently a thoracic oncologist at the University of Chicago and previously was in Milan, is going to uh, join us today. She is a professor of medicine. And also, Dr. Jarushka Naidu, who is also a professor of medical oncology, and she is currently in Dublin and previously was here in the US and has actually visited this show when she discussed advances uh, from world lung with Dr. Stephen Liu. I couldn't be happier to have both Dr. Garasimo and Dr. Um, uh, Naidu with me on today's podcast. So I appreciate you tuning in. Thank you so much, and don't forget to subscribe, rate and let me know how I'm doing by direct messaging me on Twitter and advising what I can do differently. You can visit my website, you can check the YouTube channel where you could see all of these episodes that I am taping. And without further ado, Drs. Naidu and Garasino.
1: Well, it's a pleasure of mine to have Dr. Jarushka Naidu again on the podcast. We did the podcast episode prior to WorldLine. We had a chance to meet at WorldLine. And I had invited Dr. Naidu to really talk about the differences in cancer care when it comes to treatment, diagnosis, and clinical trials across the continents. Because sometimes I feel we are in the U.S. living in a bubble. And we think everything around us is very similar. But you have a very unique experience, where you practice, where you're from, what you're doing right now. So I really feel very, A, honored to get you again, but B, uh, I'm looking forward to really learning a lot from you. So let's get started by, again, a brief introduction as to uh, who you are and where you are and, and how did you really become this well-around? Because you are a very unique experience as you traveled
2: all over the world. Well, <laughs> citizen citizen of the world. So yes, I'm, um, I'm South African, proudly South African, but trained in Ireland, in all my medical school and oncology training here. And then uh, the Irish often send their um, trainees to finish off their training in the US. So I completed my training with a fellowship at Memorial Sloan Kettering, where I worked with Jed Walchok and Naya Rizvi um, on immunotherapy and lung cancer. After that, I joined the faculty at Johns Hopkins. And I was there for six or seven years as an um, assistant professor where I developed an interest in immunotherapy clinical trials and immune-related toxicity. And more recently, I've returned back to Ireland where I trained and um, I'm uh, chief of thoracic oncology at one of the major cancer centers here and chair of the National Clinical Trials Group uh, for Lung Cancer, Cancer Trials Ireland, and a part of some of the European cooperative groups, for example, ETOP. Um, So, yes, I I think I I have a unique experience that I've worked with in in various jurisdictions and appreciate maybe some of the differences in how cancer care and clinical trials are delivered, particularly in Europe, U.S., and to some degree in Africa.
1: So you're literally, Jerushka, you're literally the perfect guest for this episode. (laughs) Okay. The way I'm thinking we're going to divide this, just to kind of explain things to listeners, we'll go through diagnosis, treatment, and then clinical trials. So when it comes to diagnosing cancer, what is available and not available between these three continents? I mean, whatever you can comment on. I mean, can everybody get a PET scan? Can everyone, whatever it is, because obviously this is important. And part of the diagnosis, which I wanted to comment on, is pathology. Right I mean, you know NGS or whatever type of uh, you know uh, staining we're doing. So can you take us through the diagnostic piece because you know maybe Hopkins is different than Ireland, and, and how are you how are you um, coping with the lack of certain tests that maybe you took for granted in the U.S?
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, let's use obviously I'm a thoracic oncologist, we can use lung cancer as an example. I think these pathways are very different. And truthfully, they're very different in places within the US. And I think that when you compare academic clinical practice to community practice in the US, it is very much like comparing to different parts of the world as well. So certainly at Hopkins, you know, we uh, had a lung cancer multidisciplinary clinic. Patients uh, got their diagnostic workups through um, the respiratory or pulmonary physicians. And we would not have actually had an in-house NGS platform beyond the standard hotspot testing panel. So we would have sent externally for foundation medicine or garden at that time. And that was a little bit different to Memorial Sloan Kettering, where I was a fellow, where there was, of course, the in-house MSK impact assay. So even within two academic institutions, a little bit different. you know, even within places in the US, I think as PDR1 came into being, the the, the workflow around which PDR1 assay to use, the interpretations, I think all of that, oh, there's Marina, <laughs> was um was something that we saw very differently in different parts of the US. And then in in Ireland, I think uh, similarly the uh trying to bring in a national system by which PDR1 testing, NGS testing is similar, Uh, in different institutions across a country and a national health service is, of course, the challenge. In Ireland, we have eight cancer centers and some of them will service some smaller units and standardizing how some of that NGS testing is done, I think is obviously an ongoing challenge, particularly as we become interested in more and more molecular markers. We have two nationally supported molecular laboratories. So most of the samples would centralize to those two molecular laboratories and have a fairly standard turnaround time But I think some of the challenges, of course, are trying to incorporate new markers as standard of care in real time and to make sure that our patients get a broad panel of NGS testing when drugs are available, either as uh, part of standard of care, expanded access, or even clinical trials. So some, some differences there. I recently returned to South Africa to give a, a talk at sort of one of the national meetings and my understanding is that there there is quite a disparity between the public system and the private system where really the private healthcare system certainly in South Africa is very akin to Europe or the US where uh, commercial NGS testing is available and is sent out as a commercial assay but in the public system Really, there is no access to NGS testing at all. So, so quite a disparity there. Um, Marina, maybe that's, I could jump in. Yeah,
1: no, that's um, actually that's actually excellent. So, um, uh, I'm Dr. Marina Garasino is uh, an excellent uh, additional guest for this podcast episode. So, Marina, I know we started a little bit before you were able to join us. But uh, we're starting by just doing some introductions so listeners at least could know a little bit more about you. And I think what's unique about having both of you on this podcast is really trying to understand the differences in terms of diagnosis, treatment, and clinical trials between Europe and the U.S. Because we do take certain things for granted in the U.S., assuming that everybody else have the same, but the reality is you practice in both continents, so you have a very good visibility into what happens and not. But just before you give us a little bit about the diagnosis, a little bit about you and, and how did you end up uh, back uh, in the uh, in the US?
3: <laughs> yeah, it, it's a long story. So my daughters wanted to study in the United States uh, and, um, and and so I started to consider the idea to move, uh, and uh, and I'm here. <laughs> and they are both in New York. They are uh, One is finishing the Parsons School of Design, and the other one is doing uh, the NYU. They are already graduated in, uh, in Italy, one in uh, uh, design and the other one in philosophy. And so they are doing a graduate program here in the United States. And so they are basically my family. And uh, we, oh, we we moved.
1: <laughs> and before but before you came to the US and you're currently a professor at the University of Chicago.
2: Yes.
3: Uh,
1: just for listeners who don't know you, before that, where were you practicing uh, uh, prior to that? I,
3: I was the director of the thoracic program at the National Cancer Institute in Milano, which is the oldest cancer center in Italy. And I think one of the oldest also in Europe. And uh, I don't know if you are familiar, but Bonadonna who invented so much of the chemotherapy for breast cancer and also for the lymphomas uh, was there and it was exactly in my same floor. So uh, yeah, and Veronesi who invented the quadrantectomy for the women for breast cancer was there. So it was a very uh, old and academic uh, institution. So Amazing,
1: amazing. (laughs) So we started, before you were able to join us, we started talking about the diagnostic piece. And what I I asked Jarushka is when you are faced with the diagnosis and staging and figuring out patients with thoracic malignancy, we're using this as a platform because you're both thoracic oncologists, what differences can you share with us? Is everything available in Italy? I mean, um, whether it's, we're talking pathology, we're talking PET scans for everyone, and they can get that done next week. whether NGS i mean what, what what have you noticed any differences
3: yeah so basically the systems are really different because in europe in general we don't have insurances and we have a universal coverage of the health system so you don't have to pay for anything And this is the biggest difference between the United States and, I would say, Europe, because all Europe is very similar, similar also to Canada. I think that is also the reason why we see always Canada and Europe together and then the United States. And so the big difference is that there is a good part of the story and the bad part of the story. The good part is that uh, you can uh, be the richest person of the country and you can be the poorest person of the country and you receive exactly the same treatment. The negative, and the same for the diagnosis. The negative part of the study is that uh, um, it takes more time, for example, to have the drug approved. And sometimes there is uh, the EMA, which is... uh, slower compared to the FDA, and sometimes uh, there are also different uh, outcomes uh, that they approve. For example, in Europe, they approve things only based on the overall survival, and uh, in the United States, they approve uh, things also based, for example, on the progression-free survival. And so clearly, uh, uh, this situation will create uh, not. I would say not delays because we saw things that were approved in the United States and then they failed to have a survival benefit. But clearly, the the process is different, and then there is a negotiation for each member of uh, uh, the UNITE uh, uh, from EU from Europe. So Italy will negotiate. Uh, the price and the strategies. Germany will do the same. So all the member states negotiate uh, the price, they negotiate the indications for the pharma company. And uh, the process can take uh, uh, much more time than in the United States. So in the United States, you have everything available tomorrow morning. And uh, in Europe, but you have to pay In Europe, you have everything available, like in one year and you don't have to pay. So I don't, I- I, But
1: but for for cancer patients, obviously they can't wait a year. So let's start by a cancer patient that is seeing you in Italy. Can you get a PET scan to stage that patient within a week?
3: Yeah, so the big difference of the staging is that we do much more PET scans in Italy compared to the United States. And we do always also the exam of the brain. So for all patients with lung cancer, we do a brain MRI and we do uh, a PET scan basically. So, and sometimes we use also the PET scan for the restaging. Here is much more difficult to have the PET scans and to have uh, uh, the the, the brain MRIs uh, and also the city they had the city so is is more complicated you you need to have the the approval of the insurance while this part in europe in general also in italy is, uh, is 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 a routine
1: and there is no wait and jerushka for the pet scan we talked about in ireland there's no wait you can get that done for a cancer patient or either in south africa there's wait or there's a
2: So I think maybe that's touching on maybe some differences within Europe, definitely in in smaller countries, we certainly have um, a wait for a PET scan. So there are only selected institutions that actually have a PET scanner and and obtaining a PET scan in in a certain timeframe is is a challenge. And there are some sort of strategic agreements between hospitals in, in obtaining them. Having said that, I think the workup is a lot more standardized, as Marina says, so we do get PET scans on every single patient pretty much at baseline and brain imaging baseline with a brain MRI. And I think that also points to the fact that, say, we only have eight cancer centers in the whole country. All of us have done fellowships either in the US or the UK. We're actually very similarly trained. So that variability in what you know in how we approach things is minimal, um, as, as we've been trained to sort of do the same way. But access is is certainly an issue. But I think we all ask for it, and and we we do get it, even though we have to
1: wait. Have you had to start a patient, Jerushka, on treatment without complete staging?
2: No, I no. won't do okay. it. Okay, so that, that that
1: no, I mean that's because that tells me the wait time. So now in lung cancer, my understanding when I was in training, by the way, there was only two lung cancers, non-small cell lung cancer and small cell lung. So now there's about 50, 55 or 500 lung cancers. So we talked a little bit about the molecular profiling and, and, and the importance of dividing the, the lung cancers based on driver mutations and so on. Marina, how are things in Italy? I mean, you can't manage lung cancer today without having access to all of this molecular information. Was that easily accessible? You could do that uh, either send out or local, and you get the information in time? Uh,
3: So, in Italy, there is a, a big difference among the cancer centers and the small hospitals. So uh, the the cancer centers, uh, basically, they do exactly what uh, we do here at the University of Chicago. There are no differences. Uh, The smaller centers, uh, they have to send the samples uh, to bigger institutions. uh, And so they have uh, worse timelines uh, compared to uh, other uh, institutions. So compared to the, the cancer center. I think that the best was done by France. I don't know if you are aware. So they created a lot of centers that they do the testing for all the countries. So the quality of testing is very high. And if you live in a smaller center, you have to send the tissue for the uh, for testing in a hub center. Um, So basically, they created a sort of system hub and spoke that work very well with a very high quality. So I believe that from what I see, this is the best that I saw in Europe.
1: In Ireland, uh, Jerushka, you mentioned something about that a little bit.
2: Similarly, so we have two central government-supported molecular laboratories that aim to sort of have the highest quality, the most up-to-date panel. Um, Having said that, there is still some variability. Sometimes the smaller centers, you know, or in certain circumstances tissue may not get sent to the central lab and something may end up being done locally. So there is still some room for variability, but there is the same national structure that Marina
1: mentions. So what I, I wanna summarize the piece of diagnosis because uh, we hear a lot of things in the US that patients could wait a year for something. And I get that for elective stuff, right? If you may wanna have like a hip surgery, I guess it's elective. But for the patients with cancer, it appears to me that they get their similar staging. It's timely and you get the molecular testing for lung cancer, which is timely. Like you, you have not noticed huge difference, right? No. From a diagnosis. Okay. So maybe the treatment then is where the variability is, because I think Marina mentioned that some treatments are not available, and here they are accessible because the FDA approved a different uh, threshold. Is that in Ireland? Like, where's the Ireland fit with this?
2: So I think one of the diagnostic challenges, certainly so far, is we do not yet have access to liquid biopsy for all patients with newly diagnosed non-small cell lung cancer. So right now, we do liquid at the time of acquired resistance in certain subsets of oncogene addicted lung cancers. Um, And that is perhaps a difference between being in a large US center and here and having to do sort of a small pilot study to demonstrate that this this shows a reduction in time to treatment. And certainly similar studies are being undertaken in the UK as well. Um, And I think that also points to a challenge of a smaller country is, the absolute number of molecular pathologists that are out there to do a volume of liquid biopsy, we would certainly have to invest in those people in order to scale up, to allow for all lung cancer patients to have this. So I think therein is a difference. Um, In terms of treatment, uh, certainly the reimbursement pathway, and I'm sure Marina will probably enlighten us about other places in, in Europe as well, because this is a national system by which uh, the, the country or the government tries to approve a drug such that everybody in the country may have access to it, there is usually a complex negotiation um, in with the pharmaceutical company and the government to try to obtain a standard price for this medication that could be delivered to all patients. And that usually is a step that takes some time. Uh, Obviously, there are differences in in places in Europe. The UK now has a, a novel link with the US called Project Orbis that allows this to be done a little bit quicker. But certainly in Ireland, that is something that affects how quickly we have certain drugs available to us.
1: So Marina, as you comment on that, I wanted to separate IV from oral therapies mm-hmm. because um, I, I don't know, maybe maybe there's a difference, maybe not. I mean, I'm assuming that if you're doing carbotaxol, is very different than if you are prescribing chrysotinib, I guess. I'm just throwing names here. Is there a difference in terms of delivery if it's one of these novel therapies versus IV therapy in terms of coverage and reimbursement?
3: no when uh, the drugs are approved in italy they are approved they can be the oral or uh, iv and you can do whatever you like if they are not approved if you want to administer the drugs that are not approved they must be at least uh, approved by ima and the patients can pay for the drugs so that is something that uh, does not happen very frequently so, but it's, there is no difference between drugs, uh, oral uh, and uh, IV. It, it's just a matter of approval.
1: And then the reimbursement, the government, the healthcare system takes care of paying for IV or oral, it doesn't matter. So the patient does not pay anything out of pocket. Exactly. They will come in and get your, they get the pills and go home and they pay nothing whatsoever. Exactly. Is that the same in Ireland?
2: Yeah, so there, it's very similar. So definitely for IV therapies, that's the same. For certain oral therapies, they're delivered under something called a, a high-tech drug scheme. And there may be a standard small amount um, that is paid as a one off um, but certainly something that would be within reach of, of any uh, citizen of the country.
1: So, so let me ask you a question. then. I mean, Marina, you were in Milan, and then you came to the US a few years back, a couple of years ago. What was the biggest, I don't know, shock or, or issue that you dealt with? I'm going to ask the same question for Jerusalem, but the opposite way. But like, what did you what did you deal with that? You know, I don't know, like, you were very disappointed or upset or frustrated that you were
3: fine with in Milan? Is there such a thing? I think the disparities. I, You know, when you are in Europe, uh, you can't imagine uh, what are the disparities because basically Europe uh, is everywhere, a social environment. And uh, here there are super rich people and super poor people. And for the poor people, I'm struggling all the time because maybe you can have also you know, the drugs approved and these people, they don't have the money for the public transportation. So they have a food insecurity. Uh, They live alone. So there is a complexity which is not drug related that I believe that in, uh, at least in Italy, does not exist.
1: But so in, in Italy or in Europe, you don't have some patients who There are poor people, uh, I presume.
3: Yeah, there are poor people, but, uh, you know, um, there are, uh, first of all, there are no copays. Uh, They don't have to pay for the treatment. They don't have to pay for additional things. So, because everything is totally free. And then uh, I believe that, uh, um, I, I, I really don't know why, because uh, clearly Italy is not uh, a a super rich country, but there is a social uh, tissue of the society for which the people take care of the other people. So for example, if there is in the building a person who is sick, there is always somebody that can bring this person to the hospital that can help. So I think that the way how we live is different.
1: So that's you know, there's a sense of community. I think what you're yeah. referring to. Um, the first thing that shocked shocked you, I guess, uh, if I'm understanding correctly, is the disparities uh, yes. where you feel. Um, Jarushka, you were here. You practiced at Hopkins for a while, and then you went there. What did you What did you sense?
2: Well, I trained in Ireland, so I I was used to the Irish system, and I, I suppose I had um, culture shock to America, and then maybe reverse culture shock in coming home to some degree. Um, I think in coming to the US, I started at Memorial. Memorial was very much a different environment, um, perhaps in a sense, more of a commercial environment. Um, and uh, people came, you know, for an opinion, they may or may not have been from New York. And there was a sort of sense of commercial choice about where you went for your treatment. And I was Jed's fellow, Jed won't mind me saying this, I was very much told, you're not Jed, where, where's Jed? So, um, which was fine. Um, people came to see him and, and and that's kind of how it was and, and similarly, you know, at Hopkins, uh, to a certain extent with Julie. Um, but I think there was that sort of sense of choice maybe and um, in the US system, because it's a big country. Um, but of course, as Marina says, choice for certain folks and uh, and others maybe not so much. And you definitely saw that difference in the social fabric, that sort of gap between maybe the haves and the have nots, and certainly something that as an African growing up in apartheid, I would have seen before. Um, But I think in in, in coming back to Europe, certainly there is that sense of community, there is that standardization. I think the other thing that's very obvious in practicing between Europe and the US is acceptance of palliative care. So, um, you know, when When we bring up uh, things like supportive care alone hospice, um, often that is very welcomed, and that is often seen as the community coming together to support their older folk or those who might need additional supports and. um, I, I learned very quickly in the US that palliative care was a bad word and um, and that the word hospice was very, uh, wasn't received very well and had to be couched in a certain way or drip fed. Um, and I think that that, again, perhaps points to some cultural differences. And there is certainly an appreciation, I think now in the US as well, that this is something that can help our patients regardless of where they come from.
3: Yeah, I fully agree. I think that this is another very important point. Another thing that is very so different, I believe, from Europe is that here, you know, I see patients 92 years old that they want to be treated. And uh, in Europe, so there is a sort of acceptance uh, that a certain point your life uh, must finish. And uh, here, I think that there is more, uh, also the family is, you know, is pushing for, uh, you're uh, and, uh you overcoming boundaries and you know I, I have a clinic of sometimes of patients that are 87 90 91 so that it's totally different from what i had uh, but
1: in- but let me but let me let me push back and ask you a question marina so let's say a 90 year old comes into your clinic in italy when you were practicing in milan i mean are you going to say i'm not going to treat you because you're 90 or you're still going to treat and you assess clinically and so on right
3: no no yeah 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 i i i so there is the idea that the older people are biologically old and not just uh, anagraphically old so but when you are for example 90 and you go to a third line of therapy maybe you say no in, uh, in Italy and here I see that there is a continuous request to continue uh, to have these patients alive and there are no data if we are doing really doing something correct and uh, I think that for these people the quality of life must be always be uh, the most important issue.
1: I, I do agree with the cultural notion that uh, you both uh, did. And, and I, I also come from a different part of the world, been in the US for 30 years. And, and the cultural aspect of wanting to push, push, push as much as possible is definitely more palpable in the US. There's little, less acceptance to the end of life issue which should take me to, uh, we talked about the palliative care. Let's talk about two other aspects and then I promise I'll let you get off the call, but one is clinical trials. Um, I think that um, clearly, uh, you know, a lot of the trials I see in the thoracic world sometimes are held globally, Um, but take me through uh, clinical trials and and what have you noticed differences uh, between Europe and the US in terms of whether it's investigated in initiated studies or are there cooperative groups that you participate in or pharma sponsored? What seems to be the pal- uh, palpable differences? We'll start with Jarushka and then go to Marina.
2: Well, I think Marina has a, a major depth of experience here and will, will will definitely be able to teach us a lot. I think in uh certainly in my experience, I, I was privileged to be able to, to write and run some investigator-initiated studies at Hopkins and, and participate in some of my colleagues. Um I think the clinical trial portfolios, as as they are in, in, in many different jurisdictions, usually are predominantly pharma with some smaller numbers of investigator initiated studies and cooperative group studies to pay the bills and to make sure everything balances. And that's certainly something that we see here in Ireland as well. I think major differences, again, are related to the size of the population. That um, within the U.S., people might, might travel quite a lot for treatment. They might get on a flight for a clinical trial that is available in one area versus another. That is something that is probably done a little bit less. Certainly, where I live or where I see people might might be less inclined to travel unless they felt that it it was for a new option and even traveling would just be driving in most instances, I think because the population is smaller again our choice of clinical trials might be a bit different tailored to the population that we see, and again, the majority of our clinical trials would be pharma based studies, but um, you know getting involved in cooperative groups expanding some of the cooperative group studies and then having at least one or two investigator initiated studies I think is important. I think a lot here as well as maybe a change in how clinical research is being done that um doing cooperative group studies or these kinds of studies are, are becoming more difficult in terms of the funding model so we are seeing that maybe our trial portfolios have a few less of these but again I think as an old-fashioned academic I think they're very very important and that there are certain questions that will be tackled by an academic study that won't be tackled for example by an industry study so certainly in creating our trial portfolio I think it's very important to have a nice mixture of these different kinds of studies Um, Marina I'm not sure what, what, what you think no, no,
3: I, I, I fully agree on uh, what you said. I think that uh, the in a certain way, uh, I feel that uh, doing research in Europe, uh, it's strange to say that uh, is easier than in the United States um, because there is, uh, so the clinical trials are the clinical trials, uh, but sometimes uh, to open a clinical trial, I think that here there is more complexity than the, in, in the United States and I think that the timelines uh, of opening the clinical trials, uh, not at the University of Chicago, I think in the United States, sometimes are really long. I think that uh, on top of that, there is the problem that there is after the pandemic, that now all the people, they want to work remotely and uh, the people, they to if they want to work remotely, Uh, they just have to go in the pharma companies because if you work in the hospital, you have to stay in the hospital with the patients. So I think that from what I see here in the United States, there is a huge number of patients that are leaving patients, sorry, people who are leaving the academia and they are going in the pharma companies. And this can create a huge problem for the academia because uh, if we have too much shortage of personnel, we can't run anymore the clinical trials. And if we can't run the clinical trials, we don't have a generalizability of the results of the clinical trials. Because you see, if you look at the enrollment in the last years, all the enrollments are basically done by Europe and also in the Eastern part of Europe. So also in Europe, there are some differences. There are uh, many patients coming also from uh, some Asian parts uh, and the enrollment of the United States, which is the, you know, the biggest country, is not so high as in other countries. So I believe that here uh, we have to think how to use better the personnel and how to simplify more the access to the clinical trials. Then there is a, a second uh, uh, consideration, which is that uh, in Europe, we don't have so many biotechs uh, like uh, in the United States. And so here you can have uh, more access to, uh, you know, to compounds that maybe we see in Europe only when they are bought by big pharma companies. And so you can, you have uh, more exposures to, novel compounds that can be maybe may interesting for the future and they are just in a, in in a smaller uh, companies and the third consideration is that uh, here the situation in the from what i see in the united states and that maybe the chicago is not uh, you know is different from uh, texas is different from california is different from uh, uh, other states uh, is that uh, there is, uh, in some populations, uh, there is a lot of skepticism to participate to the clinical trials. And um, I I refer in particular to some populations uh, and uh, I think that uh, we have to improve the education and to see that we do something for the patients and not against the patients.
1: Is it, is, it, is it which way is easier to get funding uh, because the pharma sponsored is different they're gonna have to pay for the trial but when you're an investigator how jerushka which one is easier
2: i suppose I, truthfully i haven't been at home long enough as a trialist to be able to say if it's easy or difficult um but so far, I, I must say i found the maybe i was just lucky but the funding model in getting a couple of investigator initiated studies i i, I found that at least surmountable in the US are more, obviously more difficult, but certainly I had a relatively good experience. And now in returning to Ireland, a few studies are coming on stream, but perhaps it is a little slower. I think the other consideration in the EU is the regulatory environment. So we do know that in 2018, the EU published the, the GDPR regulation. So the general data protection regulation law, which is basically, the strictest privacy and security law around data in the world. So the practicality of opening Uh, some clinical trials and clinical research studies across Europe increased in its complexity after the introduction of GDPR. And certainly different European countries' interpretation of GDPR is slightly different. And that does sometimes provide some increased level of complexity to opening studies and doing things appropriately in Europe.
3: Yeah, I think that this is a crucial point. I don't know if you are aware, but the uh, the, the privacy laws were created uh, when there was uh, the Snowden case uh, and there were the uh, phone interceptions of Merkel. And uh, they wrote the, 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 the privacy law uh, and they didn't take uh, into account that the health system uh, and, or for example, also the registries uh, uh, were exceptions to the uh, privacy laws. So the situation changed thanks to the ESMO, that is the European Society of Medical Oncology, who grouped all the most relevant uh, societies, scientific societies in Europe, and they were able to change the privacy law with written one-time consent. So potentially the patient can just sign a one-time consent, uh, for example, for the use of the personal data and whatever. But the problem is that is always difficult, uh, as uh, uh, she said, to share data. You have to reconsent the patients. For example, if, if I want to collaborate with France, we have to create uh, specific agreements for the privacy. The patients must be reconsented with all the pa- all the people who are taking care of the data. And what is, again, even more complex is now that the member states, they can shape the privacy laws according to their practice. So it it is possible that in the future, France will be different from Italy, will be different from Spain, will be different from Germany. And there will be a lot of complexity to do European trials and also I, when I started to do the TerraVOLT, that was a registry of COVID and cancer, was a nightmare for me to organize the privacy for the United States and the, the Europe together, because the laws are totally different.
1: Wow, this is fascinating to me. I mean, I'm listening to this. I, I, it's I'm a disaster, really, it's, it's not
3: fascinating. A, <laughs> no,
1: It's fascinating in a way just to learn about. I mean, this is really very, very challenging to, to hear that these differences. Well, I want to finish with um, the last few minutes, is uh, more about the physicians and the lifestyle and quality of life. Um, you know, we hear a lot in the US about burnout. Um, I, you know, um, whether, you know, how much burnout is and, and how you define burnout is in the eyes of the beholder. You both have worked in those systems. Tell me how, as a physician, as a healthcare professional, which system uh, you like more? You're have a good quality of life. You can have a life balance. You're not, you know, running hundred miles an hour. Uh, Marina, let's start with you.
3: Yeah, it's really difficult to say. So, because I believe that in the United States there is much more bureaucracy compared to Europe. Uh, At least from what I see, Uh, the notes uh, are really painful for my life (laughs) and the billing system is really painful. So sometimes I don't know why I have to spend so much time instead of doing research uh, to do this kind of things. So I think that this part can really burn out the doctors because uh, uh, it is a lot compared at least to Europe. Uh, the The good part that I, I like of the United States is that in Italy and in Europe, maybe the UK is just a bit different, but the nurses are just administering the medicine, the medications to the patients. So they do not have a role, an active role in the treatment of the patients. And here, what I, I like a lot of the system is that there are the PAs, There are the nurses, the the, the research nurses, the advanced nurses, there are multiple levels of nurses. And so you have much more help on taking care of the patients. For example, I don't have to, to take care of gemcitabine day eight because the PA will take care of this. And I have much more time to give more indications of treatment to the patients so on, on on one side that they use in a proper way my work and my brain to give indications on the other side they use my work to do the terrible notes so so, I, so I do you have do
1: you feel do you feel on in aggregate do you have good life family balance uh
3: I I, I think that I'm work And so I work 24 hours a day in Italy and the same uh, in US. Uh, But I have uh, two daughters that uh, I think that they are uh, uh, quite well grown up now. And um, I can sail, I can do vacation. So I can find my time for my life. I think that all the doctors work a lot everywhere.
1: (laughs) Jerushka, I hear, except in Ireland, they're having a great time there.
2: (laughs) Well, you're also talking to a workaholic here, so maybe you just picked two wrong people. But um, I think think what Marina says is absolutely true. Certainly in working in the U.S., I think some of the administrative requirements, the prior authorizations, the notes... They can be quite time-consuming and heavy. I think the other thing that's um quite obvious in a u in the US is the email culture, that um you are constantly on your email, and there really isn't such a thing as vacation. Um, that even when you're on vacation, you are sort of accessible on your email, and and there you know there is this replying to email even on vacation. That is certainly not true. I don't. I don't. America.
1: I don't. I don't put out of office note anymore.
2: <laughs> yeah, so, I don't. so- so that's, that's quite a difference because I think when people are out of office here, there's there's quite a respect for that. And there is a respect for the need to recharge and that um, you know one needs that time to, uh, away from one's email. Having said that, I think in Europe with a national structure, sometimes in trying to get that access to everybody, there might sometimes be less investment in some critical infrastructure. So in general, there might be exactly a Marina says, less nurses or less mid-level providers on the ground to support some of the critical clinical staff. And that can mean that potentially Europeans can burn out from a lot of heavy lifting clinical work um, rather than maybe some of the technical aspects. However, thankfully, when we're on vacation, we're (laughs) on vacation. So I think it's a little bit of both.
1: How many weeks of vacation do you get a year?
2: so quite a lot more than the US okay. so how many that's so many, many? four to six weeks um, of of vacation a year which is considerably more than most
3: places in the. US I understand yeah
1: Marina how many weeks did you yeah, get on when I was
3: when I was in Italy I had six weeks here I have five weeks which is great but I can't take so many weeks. So uh-huh. I see that I, I I think that in the last year yeah. I made three, maybe. Yeah. Uh, I, I and I fully agree that we can be burned out in different in different ways in uh, uh, the situation. I think that uh, in, uh, in 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 Italy I was burned out for the incredibly massive clinical work. But I have just to write uh, patient uh, in a CR, continue the treatment, full stop, and go to the next patient. Here, for something that can be summarized in two lines, I have to write uh, two pages.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Marina, would you would you have come to the United States to take you? I want to take your daughters out of the equation. Because I realize family, obviously, sometimes you do certain things because there's family pressure i totally get that if your daughters did not want to come to the u.s would you have come to the u.s to practice now that you've been here for several years and you have an idea obviously how things are and i also want to try to tell jerushka assuming she wasn't from ireland and now she's in ireland would she have gone to ireland so marina would you have come would you have come to the u.s now that you've been here for a couple of years and you know how, uh... how it is here
3: yeah, I I would say yes because I see a totally different system, and I see that my brain is working more and thinking more than before. You know, if I I was in Italy, maybe I I was in my comfort zone with my fabulous group with my language that is still terrible. <laughs> so um, I was in my comfort zone. I couldn't see different ways to approach things. So I would say yes, uh, to go out from my comfort zone. I think that there are pros and cons for each system. And uh, I can't say one is better to the other. Maybe I can tell you in uh, a couple of years more.
1: (laughs) Jerushka, would you have gone back to Ireland?
3: You're gonna get another
2: politician's answer. So, um... Um, You know what I think big picture it's just about the opportunity to do great work, and the truth is, you can do great work in Europe, and you can do great work in America, and 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 really we are a global community look at this call, and every time, as you said about world lung, it actually doesn't matter where you sit as long as you work with good people and you ask good questions and you never forget the question and the patient. So I'm happy wherever I am. No, yeah,
3: I, I, I think that this is a great point. And my experience during the pandemic was when that I was able to create this registry of 220 centers around the world because we are a community of people who are friends and we help each other. So it's not important that I am in the United States. Now it was exactly the same when I was in Italy. I think that the relationships among the people, they are the most important thing to work well.
1: Look, I'm very grateful for your time. Thank you so much. This is this is great. I hope listeners can appreciate the differences from a patient perspective, from a physician perspective, and uh and I look forward to uh, to seeing you in person very soon. So thank you, Dr. Jerushka and do, and Lorena Garasino. <laughs>
3: thank you for inviting us. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you tuning in. I appreciate your support and really can't do this podcast without you. So thank you. Thank you to Dr. Garassino and Naidu for visiting with me on Healthcare Unfiltered. And uh, also don't forget to uh, let me know about your wanting to wear the amazing t-shirt. Before I let you go, I would like to leave you with a quote from Winston Churchill. Success is stumbling from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. Until next time, check out.